Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean's developer cloud makes it simple to launch in the cloud and scale up as you grow. They have an intuitive control panel, predictable pricing, team accounts, worldwide availability with a 99.99 uptime SLA and 24-7, 365 world-class support to back that up. DigitalOcean makes it easy to deploy, scale, store, secure, and monitor your cloud environments. Head to do.co slash changelog to get started with a $100 credit. Again, do.co slash changelog. Go time. Welcome to Go Time, a podcast about cloud native technologies, telemetry, containers, distributed systems, and of course, the people and language that make it all go. We record the show live on Tuesdays. It's a lot of fun. Join us in the Go Time FM channel of Go for Slack at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. You don't want to miss it. We also take requests at changeout.com slash request. Select Go Time in the drop down and let us know what you want to hear about on the pod. Follow us on Twitter. We are at Go Time FM. Okay, let's do this. Go Time, baby. Hello and welcome to this episode of Go Time. I'm Johnny Borsico and joining me today are John Calhoun, Yana Dogan, and special guest Dave Blakey. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yana, it's good to have you back. You seem to have been have been traveling the world and, and That's trying this whole... That's not true. <laughs> no? I only took a week of a break. I'm serious. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like the pictures. I'm like, okay, you're, you're right. Uh-huh. But next week, I think I will be in London. So if you see me joining with Matt from the same room or something, don't get surprised. Oh, that would be kind of cool. <laughs> see, but you see, you are traveling the world. I mean, that's, that's, oh, you've yeah. been in more places, you know, in the last month than I have in, you know, this year. Actually, yeah, it's, it's still a new year. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, John, how are you, man? I'm doing well. You've been busy lately. You've been releasing courses and trainings and everything. Yeah, been busy. I mean, the truth is I've been busy for a while. It's just everything sort of gets finished at the same time. So then it looks like I've been especially busy now. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's, well, it's good to ship. So, you know, good stuff. Dave, we know little about you, but we're about to fix that, right? We know a little bit about what you do and who you work, or should I say whom you work for. But today, in today's episode, it's actually, we're going to cover a topic that's, that's actually special and near and dear to my heart as a cloud engineer or operator, as I sometimes call it, telemetry. And you're going to have to forgive my, my accent here. The, the French is trying to come out. Telemetry, telemetry. Tel- you're going to have to, yeah, you can correct me. When you I think that was this. perfect. Okay, good. Thank you. Telemetry is something that we rely on quite a bit for doing cloud operations work, but it's not just for that. So the, the, the use case for telemetry is much broader and you actually are working on something that actually involves quite a lot of that. But before we dive into that, I'd like us to sort of level set a little bit. Let's talk about what telemetry is, what it's used for, and who is best positioned to leverage it. Mm, absolutely. So, I mean, telemetry is an extremely broad term, mm-hmm. as you said. Obviously, here we can narrow it into at least, uh, you know, computing and, and modern computing, I suppose. Uh, but 
at its core, it really means collecting and storing. Uh, and I like to think using, but not necessarily, uh, but collecting and storing data from remote sensors or remote machines, remote computers. You know, So from the left side being you know, how much uh, electricity or gas is your water heater using to the right side being, you know, what's the response time of uh, an API backend that you have. It's around getting that information and all of that kind of stuff. And, and I think more recently is around a lot of the techniques and the areas in, in which to add telemetry to applications, you know, as you want to, while you're building them, as you'll know, when you start to scale things out, it's, it's uh, often too late if you haven't done it already. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things where it may not feel important in the start of a project, but when you need it, you're wishing you had put it in um, from the start kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes you don't know you need it until it's, it's thought, you know, until you're way too far gone. Uh, you, when you start having bottlenecks, you start having problems. And I mean, that's the traditional problem that telemetry tries to solve. But nowadays with security concerns and with scaling and, you know, like scaling out, scaling in, things are not static anymore. Telemetry has started to play a much bigger role than just saying, why is my web page slow? It's much more than that now. Is it because of there's not enough established practices around this? Um, I think a lot of companies I've seen, especially when they're like first, you know, bootstrapping, they don't necessarily care anything around, you know, production ex- excellence or like a serial practices. Uh, and telemetry, you know, plays a big part in this, but they thought maybe thinking that it's like, can be such an afterthought, right? And then eventually feel very overwhelmed by the amount of work they need to do. Exactly. And and the worse that becomes, the worse, you know, it's like it's this kind of snowball effect because, you know, you just start randomly adding telemetry and it's not really, you're ultimately trying to solve a problem where I think the, the best way to look at telemetry is to try and store all of the important components uh, and even some of the ones you, you might not think are important yet uh, for an application, not to solve a, a crisis now. But to to like shine a light on that on this process as a whole, because like a lot of the time, if you add, you know, you say, well, why is my website slow? A simple uh, solution would be to say, oh, I need more web servers. But it might be the database server that's slow. It might, you know, that's a common example. But you, you get the idea. It could be something that's not immediately obvious to you. And the more data you have, the easier it is to track that kind of thing down. And that's just around scalability. What is the best approach in terms of like planning? Should we start thinking about this uh, at the design? process or uh, what is the best time to start thinking about telemetry absolutely i think when someone is launching a large scale project it's probably something that they are considering already but i think maybe it's more appropriate now to say you know what about a small one or a medium one that's that's got some growth obviously not some you know if you're doing an internal wiki for your your own kind of five-man office it's probably not a big problem but you know if you're building a project i think it's important to start from the first line of code, basically. So, it, like, what, and, and it can be very simple, you know. You can just have a class in your system that you can send random gauge information to or metrics to or whatever. And once that exists, it's very easy to just pass that information there. That's what I would advise is make it super easy to send, you know, just a slug and the value and that it's a gauge or a metric or a point in time measurement or response time. And even if you don't actually send those anywhere on day one, uh, at least it's, you know, you're starting to put it in the code. At our business, we have what we call our code contract. And it's like this nine set of nine rules for everything that we write. And one of the rules is that everything has to use this telemetry helper that we put in. Uh, because we knew at some stage it would become a problem. And it uses very little 
development work, you know. Yeah, I've seen a lot of cases where people are debating, you know, what to collect and how to collect and so on. I think there's also some sort of like confusion around what matters for the success of the project and so on. So you have to be more holistic than maybe thinking about, you know, all the specs like availability and the debuggability in order to, you know, have at least like um, have a better understanding of what you want to collect and how you are going to be utilizing it. A lot of times, like small companies end up failing because they start too late and so on. Uh, but it's very important to, you know, start thinking about this at the very early stages. Exactly. I, I'd rather be in a situation where, you know, you were collecting some information that was useless or you were collecting something in not the most efficient uh, format or something. Then you either were collecting nothing or had this like telemetry paralysis where you feel like, well, you know, we've got to put so much time and effort into this. And it's just uh, ultimately, I think just do what suits the project and the business and just make sure you're doing something and it, it will evolve. So I'm interested in pulling in a thread a little bit. I think, Jana, you, you, you kind of touched on it when, when you mentioned sort of basically try, trying to keep track of what's important, right? So when I think of the things that matter to me as somebody who's looking after infrastructure versus some something that's important to perhaps a, a back-end developer or a front-end developer, and ultimately the end user, right, who has to use whatever it is we're putting in front of them, like there are different things that are important to, to us, right, at, at those varying levels, right? So I'm assuming telemetry is useful in all these areas, but ultimately the business cares about the end user experience, right? So how do you approach, when you gather a team and you're about to start doing a work, at what point do you start carving out, right, the, the things that are important for the different teams and the different stakeholders i think it's iterative you know again like i would i would say that a very large project would function quite differently you know that would be part of the design decision and it would be built in from the foundation and it would be quite like a complicated you know approach to telemetry because they would need that but in medium to smaller projects and by medium i still mean you know it could be a large project right like i consider our our product to be medium in size and it's six million lines of code so i mean you know in that type of project, I think you can iterate. So we start by saying, okay, let's make sure in, in the from the code point of view, developers are storing the metrics that they think are important and we can always add more. Let's make sure from a network performance point of view and from a systems and, and scalability point of view, we're storing the things that we think are important. And then when we have problems, like it becomes immediately obvious where telemetry is missing or where telemetry is useful because that's the funny thing you don't always know right like let's say you're looking at a cloud engineer point of view and you say okay my telemetry is showing me that my cpu usage is uh, like 80 percent on my 10 cloud instances sitting at amazon and i probably need another 20 instances but you might not notice that there's 200 percent or 2000 percent more failed logins per second than they normally are and actually what you've got is a brute force attack now if you've got all of these metrics so you know this is jumping forward a bit but i think the best thing with telemetry is to store as much as you can and have something look for anomalies if you have that type of setup where you're saying something is like a statistical anomaly then when you go to say okay what's going on here it, those things pop up, right? Far more requests per second from a certain country, you know, way more failed logins than usual. And then all of a sudden you realize that the problem is not what you thought it was, or you don't find it and you have to start digging and digging. And then you implement a way of tracking that in the future. So if you're starting off with uh, your telemetry and say, say you don't have a clue what to start with, like you're somebody who just hasn't gone about doing it, what are the first few metrics you would suggest they try out? So I, I would say it's probably broken up into three areas. 
So the first area you've got is your actual server. So whether it's a cloud instance, it's a VM, it's a container, you know, whatever it is, the actual system that's hosting it, most people don't realize how far down the journey of telemetry they are because they can tell the CPU usage on there, they can tell the memory, or they can tell if it's online or offline. I mean, that's a data point, right? Like, is the server working? Is the server not working? So you start to monitor things like that and you start to, you know, have some basic kind of understanding of your server, obviously, and servers. The second thing is your network. So that's where most kind of scaling and telemetry information and, and, and data and stuff becomes very useful. You know, like the, the time of up and down sites is long gone. But, you know, what if your website responds on average or your API responds on average in 200 milliseconds? There was a deployment last night and now it's 400 milliseconds. This is like very important information to have, you know, so simple things like HTTP reply times and your HTTP reply statuses, for example, how many 200 codes are there, 400 codes, 500 codes, you know, just picking up that there's 5% of responded pages are errors versus 0.1% can really help you to, to shortcut an issue. And then the final one is the real kind of key, the fundamental kind of area of, of telemetry, which is in, in your app. Uh, and that would be start to track the stuff that's important to you now. If you've got a key value store that you use for caching, track how many, what's your cache hit rate. You know, if the cache hit rate hits the floor, then you know something might go wrong. What's your database's response time like? You know, how, how, how much cache are you storing? How many logged in users are there? Like all, all of the components that make your site work, you just start tracking and tracking and tracking. And it's so easy. Like if you've got, you know, you literally have a function called like stats gauge. 10, you know, users.total, stash gauge 12, users.total, you know, um, and you just kind of just start to track that stuff. And you find out that actually it's not hard to, to implement. The much harder part is, is taking responsibility for that data and, and using it. But that can come. The first part is storing it and having it available and understanding how it impacts your service or application. Whose responsibility is it to care for that data, as you suggest? Is it the operations team? Is it the engineering team? Is it the product manager? Is it everybody? It may be traditional structures, you know, traditional where you've got IT operations, you've got security and you've got development, like kind of a separate houses. The more siloed it is, the more likely they are that they will have pieces that they care more about than, than others do. But that's kind of like a crux of telemetry, right? Because like I was saying, if you don't see the whole picture, you might not see, you know, if you were just in IT ops, you'd, you'd launch 10 more servers instead of realizing that you've got a security problem. So we work primarily with what you would call more uh, modern types of deployments, I guess. So like a lot of Kubernetes type stuff, cloud native people, things like that. And interestingly, the use case there is quite different. It's a word I hate using because everybody has made it just mean everything, but it's like a DevOps type of role, right? But what that means to me is someone that cares about the application as a whole. So they don't care about the code or the server it runs on or the cloud they use or the firewall or the load band. So they care about the whole application uh, and the, that team will normally uh, be in charge of the telemetry and monitoring of it and everything at least in our experience i think one of the other questions is you know you mentioned a bit about anomalies or um, some teams some organizations prefer to set some slos and uh, they produce some alerts as soon as you know some of the metrics are out of the boundaries and i think each organization has a different um, strategy some people like some organizations prefer a monitoring team or an sre team to be reactive to the alerts 
and then they kind of like escalated or delegated to other teams you know the first responders versus the other folks and so on it it has a lot to do about the organization and the way the company or organization works right you make a good point you know because i i was talking almost from the angle of saying there's something wrong let's look at the telemetry but the next kind of natural step from that is exactly like you're saying is to rather have the data be presented to people when things are picked up like anomalies and that. And yeah, the bigger the business, the more likely there is a team that is responsible for that. Um, But that doesn't mean that smaller businesses can't use open source free tools to achieve very similar types of results. We talked a lot about uh, metrics, but you specifically, you know, mentioned that our systems are getting larger and there are a lot of like different components. Recently in the like last decade or five years, you know, distributed tracing and logging, especially correlated with a trace ID or a request ID has also become very popular uh, in terms of like collecting signals. Some organizations at least like use them as another source of telemetry. Uh, What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's critical the larger the organization is. The reason why I am like kind of, you know, choosing my words carefully is because it can be quite difficult uh, to achieve in an early project or to add to an existing project, you know. Um, So you'll often find that level of scrutiny is quite challenging for a smaller business or a medium-sized business even to achieve. I mean, like, you know, we're jumping forward a bit, but if you take a look, like we could have, we ourselves could have, 50 devices at a client and each device could be generating 100,000 lines of logging a second. And for a company to actually store that information is, is you know, often beyond their, their ability. So, you know, that's a nice thing about if you have like all the hooks in to get this information, then when you need it, you can, you can grow into it. I'm interested in understanding the telemetry landscape a little bit right now. You mentioned, obviously, at, at uh, your company at Snapped. That's the business you're in. So you, you, you likely have an understanding of the landscape right now that we hear about these projects, but we don't really quite know where they fit in, right? So uh, I'm thinking of things like open telemetry, open tracing, open census. Like there's a lot of these sort of uh, open source projects that, are, that all seem to have overlap in terms of the, the problem they're trying to solve. But to me, it seems like some teams decide, okay, we're, we're going to adopt open census, whatever that means, right? And then they go find the clients, they, they find you know, the, the servers and they do their thing. And now you wonder, okay, well, when there's a standard, if there is a standard, like what, do we retrofit everything? Like, so, so it seems like right now there's a lot of churn in that space. Like, can you lay out the landscape for us here? Yeah, there is a lot. It suffers from that same sort of like DevOps state where people have wound up building their own uh, in a lot of situations. I don't mean building the entire stack, but, you know, a lot of tooling and custom work to get things to work with the way they want. By far, what we see the most are, are people using things like Prometheus and Grafana and stuff like that to, to dashboard and visualize stuff. Because most of the companies we work with, it will be mostly internal their collection of the information uh and their ability to send it somewhere uh, because it will be from different apps different stacks like you know it could be some data coming from microsoft service some coming from containers some from amazon but they'll often have a single source of dashboarding and reporting and analysis for that so that will usually be something like prometheus or something like that where you know then they can automate a lot of the like anomaly detection and visualization of that data and stuff like that so it's a pretty developed space in terms 
terms of like how you see that information once you start to store it and you know keep it in a time series database and all these kinds of things. But it's really up in the air with how you track, how you communicate. Probably really the biggest thing we see are people that are just using StatsD to stream telemetry data to something that then collects it and ultimately outputs it into some sort of dashboarding solution. Yeah, as a person who has some experience in this field, uh, I used to work on open senses. And I think we were trying too hard to maybe unify the approaches, you know, unify the export types, uh, you know, the export data, exported data, or, you know, unifying the library space or trying to establish uh, standards. But it seems like the field is very crowded. And it's just hard to, maybe it doesn't make much sense because in the end of the day, all you care is like getting the data to a dashboard to be able to utilize the data. And I think like that's primarily what the organizations care about. Uh, they don't necessarily care about the, you know, the export format or the library they're using to instrument. In a lot of cases, they don't even care about the reliability of it. And that's one of the challenges with that space as well. If your telemetry data is something that you're collecting every second or multiple times a second, uh, losing some of it doesn't matter, you, you know, in most cases. So like if we, for example, are, are writing the response times of an API the whole time, like we stream that information through UDP uh, and we don't even check if the destination got it. Because we'll pick up that no data has been plotted for five minutes. But like if one packet drops, it's, you know, a lot of the time with telemetry, you don't, it does, it's not a big problem. So people can be like kind of very, like, you know, that's often internally kind of developed just how they get that data out. And, and much more the standards seem to be on the display of it and the detection of it. But, you know, like you guys mentioned, there are a lot of projects starting up there. And so maybe it will clear up in that. I, it, like often when people build their own things, it's because there is a need. But you also have to deal with the fact that there are so many people that have built so many things now that it's like it is a bit of a, a web. True. Also, there are a lot of like prepackaged software and, you know, cloud platforms that can export a lot of like uh, telemetry. And there is no, you know, standard around what type of like where they would export or what data format it would be. It would be nice um, to have some sort of like standard at least. So we can go and like, you know, talk to all these open source projects or the cloud providers to, you know, export some telemetry out of the box because everything is a black box when you have a prepackaged uh, something or like a vendor solution, right? Exactly. Like, in you, I mean, we have that problem with our product. It's like, so, so, you know, we do our own dashboarding for our servers and systems and things. But when we ultimately want to let people integrate that into their DevOps tooling or the environment or something like, how do we get that information out? So, you know, you provide a REST API, then you provide a webhook URL. And then, you, you know, because you're trying to find some way to like fit into what they do. And there's no standard. That's 100% correct. If you've been sort of in this space for for any length of time you're going to hear the term observability quite a bit right so and and we know that telemetry plays a part of that but oftentimes it, it feels like it occupies a, a very large slice of the pie right they, i've heard people mention talk about the, the pillars of observability and sort of you know metrics and tracing and all these things and logging and all that what are the concerns, right, that one has in terms of observability? When I say I want observability, what am I really asking for here? And how does telemetry help answer these questions for me? I think the term observability, I mean, like you say, there's, the, you know, there's pillars of it, there's all these things. But it, to me, it's, 
has seen a rise in popularity lately because of exactly what we were just saying, this black box effect that things have. So like really what it is, is let, let me give you an example in our world. You've got one web server that runs your API and then you have to scale that out and you've now got two. Then imagine you scale that out a lot and instead you've got 30 and they're in multiple data centers. And it's all going through some load balancer and someone says to you, oh, you know, every time I use my Android phone, if I'm in South America, when I try to log in, I get a 500 error. Like, and that's, to me, observability. You, it's like a needle in a haystack. You know, it's the, the problem just becomes so compounded when everything is being funneled through one point and then split off into all different directions. And, you know, and so the rise of observability, I think, actually comes out of trying to problem solve trying to debug issues, right? And not being able to see them. Where telemetry came to play is to say, okay, you know you have an issue. Let me look at the general health and well-being of my system at large in order to be able to see where I should focus down. You know, like if you were looking for that problem, perhaps you will notice that your Azure data center has 5% errors on requests, whereas your Amazon one has 0.2%. So, you know, okay, hmm, seems like something's going on in my Azure data center and I can start to drill down there. And that's where then the rest of observability comes in, right? Like how accurate can your logging be? Like, can you actually look for all 500 errors that went to all the web servers in this data center and then find the web server that it went to and then, you know, dig into that. But at its core, observability to me is just really being able to see through that veil, right? Like to actually see what's really happening. What's the traffic look like? What are the valid requests? What are the invalid requests? Where are things breaking? And not have it obscured by, you know, like a cloud service or or a, a firewall or, a, you know, a, a load balance or whatever it might be to actually to, you know, it's almost like a simplification of the complex system that things run on now. I mean, it's even worse when you get into things like Kubernetes and, you know, the pod you're trying to see that the error was on has been destroyed and it's just gone now. You know, where's the data? And, you know, and then it really starts to get hard. But like, that's really what I think it is, is it's just about being able to see in a simple fashion, in as simple a fashion as you can, what's going on. Because either you want to prevent something going wrong or you're trying to discover what is wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the, I think, definitions that I heard and I liked is observability is more about as asking questions that you are not prepared to ask. You know, with typical sorts of metrics and so on, we, we basically know what we are looking at. Uh, we plan so we collect metrics around it, or eventually we learn over time that, oh, these are like some of the failure modes, so we should maybe better collect more metrics around that. Observability is like, I think, like a broader approach to be able to utilize whatever you collect in order to be able to, you know, answer some of the questions that you are not prepared to answer. Exactly. You know, my simple example in the beginning that you don't need more servers, you need to stop the, the brute force login attack. It's that kind of like, full visibility of the system so because what you think is wrong may not be what's wrong and if you can see all of the moving pieces and components then you can hopefully see what's actually happening on your system uh, and ideally prevent an issue but also you know debug an issue Hi there, this is John Calhoun, one of your GoTime panelists. When I'm not working on GoTime, I create programming courses that help developers level up their Go skills. And one of my more recent courses, Algorithms with Go, is live, and I wanted to invite you to check it out. 
So it's completely free, and in it we explore how algorithms and data structures work, as well as how to actually implement them in Go code. So if you've ever had an interest in learning about algorithms or data structures, or if you felt like you understand them conceptually but just couldn't nail down that coding part, this course is going to be great for you. We actually dive into coding everything, we work on practice problems, and it's a lot of fun. You can sign up completely free at algorithmswithgo.com slash gotime. Uh, again, that's algorithmswithgo.com slash gotime. And don't forget that last slash gotime bit. It helps me keep track of how you found out about the course so that gotime gets credit for referring you. Thanks for listening. take it down one one level a bit so if i'm a go developer right so obviously we have a lot of go listeners on, on the podcast i'm not sure if if you realize that but they are going to want to understand right uh, not only basically hey i'm a go developer where where do i get started with telemetry and what do i measure how does going make it easier or harder or simpler like this basically there's there are these concerns but does go in and all of our collective experiences does go make the job of of collecting or emitting or you know whatever we do around telemetry in our projects does go make that harder compared to other projects i'm curious i don't think so so about 50 percent of our stack is go we're using it exactly in the way that i described to you uh, you know and developing product for clients that that do it in the same way i think it's actually quite easy it's very easy to get that data out in an efficient way you know obviously that's like one one of the easiest the nicest things to do is that you can just dump that data out and you don't have to worry about it affecting the performance of your program is is, is also really nice when you look at things like telemetry right because you don't want the telemetry to ultimately become a bottleneck in your in your platform that's why i said like udp for example is very popular because you can just fire and forget and it's very easy to do that with go but i mean go itself and everything has telemetry you know like that's like when you look at telemetry we often think like okay it's very advanced measurements around like very specific application focused things but you know your garbage collection is is telemetry you know how much memory have you freed how much memory have you allocated like what's your current usage you know all of these kinds of things are telemetry and once you start to monitor that stuff, you start to think of things that you might also want, you know, like we have a client server app. So, you know, we output from our Go server system. Well, how many people are connected right now? Is that changing? You know, how much, how many requests per second are those people creating? And that's all just simple telemetry that, you know, we don't even use like a third party library or anything. We just, like I said, fire and forget a, a UDP send, uh, send out of it. So in my opinion, I would say it's it's very easy, but then I think it's easy to do it in any language um i certainly don't think go hurts and uh, it's very easy to do it in a, in a performance sensitive way i personally wish that there was an easier way to export maybe you know if the runtime was right into a udp port by default or something and uh, that would be much easier a lot of times people you know learn to care about telemetry at a later time as you said and it's really significant if they were able to just turn on something and, you know, collect that data uh, in production or sometime when they need it. So, you know, there's been a lot of like discussions around the standards, I think, primarily for this reason, because we want to be able to address, oh, how can we like make people turn on maybe collection at a later time and collect as much as possible 
and uh, utilize it when the user needs it. So I think there is like one particular thing that we may, you know, take care in the long term. And that's this, like being able to collect at a later time. It's so difficult because like I, I agree with everything you said. And then at the same time, it's a hard problem to solve because, you know, the, the important metrics in one app are totally different from another. But I do agree that if there was like a very easy, accessible, well-documented, you know, the lines of code for the project would probably be very small, um, but a well-documented source that people could use just as like, you know, the book on what you should store from a Go app and, and you know, where you should, what foundation you should start with. Uh, I think that would encourage people to not have to go back in time, like you said, and, and add to it. Yeah, I ordered a page on the uh, golang.org, uh, golang.org slash doc diagnostics. But, uh, you know, it's never a document that like people read through before they push something to, you know, production. So maybe we should do a better job explaining uh, maybe the whole, you know, production related issues. Often a popular package does a better job of getting a readme across than a page. You know, like a, a package that has a lot of stars that a lot of people use. You see, oh, everybody's using this. Like, I've been, you know, and it can be 50 lines of code, uh, you know, but if it, it just sets the standard for what you think, then like, that's quite a good way of getting that. That's such a really good point. The number of times that I just published like some packages, like very small packages or tools, it's because it was very hard to give user an entry point. So you just, you know, make it a small project and then, people start to like it and share it and like it becomes more of like a de facto thing it's a really good point that presenting it as, as a project or some utility tool is like a really good way to you know spread the word speaking of packages go has curiously enough an exp var package and that's built into the standard library how should one if one's curious or if one's kind of scratching their heads wondering well that looks awfully like a, a, some sort of a mechanism where I could be collecting, you know, metrics and instrument my Go code and expose that to something that's going to come sort of scrape it or something like that. Like, should folks be looking at that as a starting point for instrumenting their code in Go? What are your thoughts? Can I explain yes, something? Yes, please. Yep. Okay. Uh, so it's basically that package has been modeled after Varzi. Varzi is a convention at Google, which is you have some keys and values and you can basically in the in the binary you can register any key and then you know set a value. So Varzi, the XPVAR package was very identical to the Varzi libraries at Google. I think they needed it because some SRE folks demanded it when they were mm -hmm. first going to production with Go. But over time Varzi turned out to be like we think that it's not very scalable because you know people just dump a lot of random things and then you know the namespace is becoming very complicated and so on so they sort of like deprecated Varzi and like switched to a different model and I think in 2.0 there's a topic around this that they are thinking about deprecating XVAR uh, maybe replacing it with something better um, if, especially if there's like a standard, you know, established standard or, you know, they're going to reconsider it for Go 2.0. So that's like the background story. But, you know, we can still discuss if it's useful for end users. Yeah, we are by no means the authority on, on collecting telemetry information, right? Like we, we focus on a very specific sector of application telemetry and, and then we, we process it and report all on, on it all ourselves. But in my personal development experience, not, you know, from a, a large scale project or anything like that, I've found that it's 
better to fire and forget telemetry than to expose a telemetry collection point. And I, I don't know if that's really where the standard will go. Maybe, you know, people will point to this podcast as where I was wrong about what uh, <laughs> what the future of telemetry and Go would be. But, you know, exposing a bunch of like almost what I would call like debug stuff as, as the solution to telemetry is a bit of a slippery slope as opposed to saying this is a metric that we care about for reason x and we're going to send it to location y and you know in the future we'll we'll use it for various things because one of the biggest parts where you start to learn what telemetry you need and, and how to use your telemetry is when it actually either helps you solve a problem or doesn't you know if you've got an issue and you're able to see where that issue is through your telemetry then you learn something and especially if you cannot see where it is through your telemetry you learn something you know so like we've had that where we've said like you know we've had this performance problem uh, that we've ultimately found and our telemetry didn't find that and so we've added more tracking in that that piece of the code so you know i think like it's almost like a you know just like a dump out on some HTTP get that people need to then collect data and, and pretend to process it in places is is like probably doesn't actually solve the developer problem of making sure that the things get used you know but that could just be my personal opinion. This is actually a very good topic and it's I think still a very relevant thing. Uh, you know what is the best way to pull uh, metric data or to make the you know the process push. We currently think that like scheduling the pushing is better because at least the process knows like can schedule the push, even if it's not just like UDP fire and forget type of uh, push. You know, the process has a better chance to just run this in the background and like just do the push whenever I think it's better. In the pool model, imagine that a server is receiving a lot of traffic and like there's already like a huge you know workload uh, on the server and then. Your monitoring uh, system comes in, like tries to pull and, you know, doing a bunch of work in order to just be able to generate all the, you know, the values of the metrics and like just, you know, uh, present it as a HTTP endpoint uh, in the Prometheus endpoint fashion. It's just kind of like, you know, overloading uh, the process. So instead of that model, it's much better to, you know, push. Uh, but, you know, this is like all, uh, it's still a controversial topic because it also depends on like how you uh, deploy your monitoring stack. Uh, I think the pool model came from this like, you know, Prometheus's pool model is coming from Borgmon because at Google, Initially, everybody was deploying their own Borgmon instances. So they were like sort of like kind of like have more of like an overall control and like they shifted to more of like a central global scalable type of like monitoring stack. The requirement, it's almost like, you know, you don't have to care about the availability of your monitoring stack at all. And you don't have to like strictly position your monitoring stack or collector with the processes you have. So they had like more flexibility in terms of like pushing, but they didn't, you know, hit this as a bottleneck initially because there were like other problems such as like uh, maintaining your Borgmon instance and so on on but you know if you have a globally available collector pushing is much easier because at least like the process can tell that like oh you know i don't have much traffic right now or you know i can maybe this is the better time because you know exporting uh, metrics is important but it's not as important as serving the user traffic right so you know giving that flexibility to the process is really important yeah i, I couldn't agree more that's the nice thing about pushing is that you know, you can go all the way from like fire and forget, like I say, which is really nice because, you know, then there's no 
headaches around that. But if you go further up, you give the process the ability to decide what's important and what's not. Like if it's about to fail, it might, you know, block to send that message to say, you know, listen, we've got a serious issue here. But on the other hand, if it wants to decide that it doesn't need to store telemetry information right now because it's, it's you know, the, the system is overloaded, then it can do that as well. Whereas with collection, it's like it's just the static kind of, you know, it's almost like you get a cron job, which is W gets a whole bunch of pages and, you know, regardless of what's happening. And you just dump stuff onto those pages. I, yeah, if that answers your question, I, I think like our, our approach has always been to push the stuff out where possible and to let the app decide what's important, what's not, uh, and how it wants to deliver those messages. Since you're talking about the UDP, do you have an agent that collects? What is the collection model is like? So uh, for us, well, we have, uh, we, so we've got two sides of telemetry really, right? We've got our product, which, you know, collects specific telemetry for our ADCs and load balances and things like that. But then more so I'm talking about for our, our own internal use, like for our code and, and you know, our, our hosting systems and all that kind of stuff. And for that, we just have, uh, we have our own, like, again, right, that like DevOps hacked everything together, but we have our own kind of collected thing in the middle that does a whole bunch of various things with the data. Uh, and the reason that that happened is also because we use it for some of our, our actual applications, our clients telemetry as well, like specifically for anomaly detection in it. So it does all of that stuff for us. But then, um, like some of our data, we stream directly out of that, that UDP fire and forget. We send straight to Datadog, for example. So we even explore off platform to like some of our like shared SaaS based hosting things and then other stuff we keep in in product and you know so like we're exactly that bad example where we we kind of built it ourselves so it's interesting that a company whose product is collecting and exposing um, some of that data is actually using another company who's <laughs> is able to display that so is, is this a case of I'm wondering if this is a symptom of sort of a, a basically no one tool or platform that does it all or that sort of answers all the questions you might have. So you end up having to pull in a bunch of different things to try in order to get like a, an overall observability sort of a answer. Right. Exactly, because we we don't answer all the questions. So so our product is sitting at the fr- at the entry point to the network, right? So it's a load balancer, it's an ADC. So you've got load balancer security firewall, you know, etc. for the traffic that's coming in. So we're reporting very specifically on that information, and th- that means that we also then need to offer that information out to our clients to integrate with other things. Because like if they've got a problem in that space, yes, they'll come directly to our platform and look at their reports and their data and things like that. But if they got a problem with the app at large, we need to just contribute our small piece of information to their overall telemetry. And so it's quite common for us to, to ship information, you know, off our platform to theirs or, you know, expose it in some way. Like generally, we've tried to be as open as possible, especially when we deal with larger enterprises. They have almost all got their own use case. And, you know, as wide open as you can make your platform, I think ultimately is the best. Like, you know, to the points earlier, though, there's not a lot of standards, so we wind up adding like seven different ways of getting data out of our platform <laughs> because, you know, that's what's needed. Yeah. <laughs> One of the interesting things that we realized when, you know, initiating open census was a lot of our large customers was dependent on, you know, multiple products. And sometimes, you know, this is about really trying to get 
some additional stuff additional feature from a vendor and sometimes it's about like the team preferences in a very large organization a team is really like you know they like datadog they want to use datadog some other team wants something else so we thought that like um, having something vendor agnostic is really the key uh, you know you can't really like lock that that type of data to a provider like it's not it, it, that's not going to be useful for anyone so being able to you know export to multiple vendors was also very important in our case i think that's 100 percent true i mean when you look at the more traditional model you've also got multiple stakeholders who only want certain pieces of the data on their certain platforms like you've got it ops and you've got security you know and they, they can run totally separately so i think that it's critical the way we have wound up having to do that is by building it ourselves Hello there, this is Jared Santo, Managing Editor here at Changelog. The fact that you're listening to this means you are actively investing in your future in this industry. Things move fast and keeping up is hard work. Help us help you stay relevant by subscribing to Changelog Weekly. We track, log, and contextualize what's happening in software throughout the week and deliver it directly to your inbox on Sunday mornings. Head to changelog.com weekly to browse the archives, subscribe, and push the easy button on your continuing education. That's all from me. Once again, that's changelog.com weekly. So you talked about, you know, on the ADC side of things, you're collecting certain telemetry. Can you share some of the like more important ones you feel like you guys are collecting and like where customers have found them to be useful? Yeah, absolutely. So our newest product is called Nova and it's our kind of cloud native focused uh, scalable ADC. So an important component of that is that we run many ADCs centrally. So it's like a control plane data plane model. So we are collecting a lot of data from the data plane to display in the control plane, right? But we had a lot of learnings in our traditional product snap one, which is like a standalone ADC. But what's interesting is that we've tried to tackle it in a very different way. So we collect mostly the same data, right? How many of every type of HTTP reply code are you getting? How many requests uh, are you getting? How many TCP connections? How many TCP connection failures? How many timeouts are there? What's the reply time? You know, and when you look at the response times, it's like there's a lot of information there. Like what was the TCP connect time to the server? Is there a network issue? What was the HTTP reply time from the server? Is there a backend issue? What was the response like to the client? You know, how long until we close that session with the client? Is there a front side network issue? You know, there's all of these metrics, but what we've tried to do, and I don't know, you know, time will tell if our approach is, is interesting enough or right enough now. What we've tried to do is not put any hard coded values in for any of those, but rather to do just like anomaly detection and predictive profiling of what we expect the data to look like. Because one of the things is our system will uh, it auto scales, so it will pre-scale. And so it needs to do like a lot of prediction of those numbers. So we've wound up in this system where we collect a huge amount of telemetry and we set no hard lines for what should be alerted, but rather just if it changes too much. And so far that's going well, but I think it's a little bit odd for some people because, you know, they want to say, well, I expect my website to respond in 200 milliseconds. So if it's ever more than 250, please tell me. And instead we're saying, well, if it always responds in 200, then we will tell you if it's 250. But if it doesn't, then we won't. 
But, you know, so all of that type of stuff is your traditional things that you expect, you know, like what are the, what's the throughput look like, the request rates, the response codes, you know, because you can pick up a problem long before by saying, oh, I normally generate 0.01% errors. Now I'm generating 0.5% errors. You might not notice that, but it means something's changed and it could mean that something's about to get a lot worse and it could mean that there's a security issue, it could mean all those things. But by the same token, we will also check like, for variances between two things like for example if the average user sends far more get requests than post requests but one user is sending far more post requests than get requests uh, is this a security issue like are they trying to brute force a password is there something weird is a specific user getting way more 404 errors than everyone else like why is that it's probably some script or something you know there's all there's like so telemetry is often a combination of two values like what is this value versus that value as opposed to just a single value um, and so that's a lot of the stuff we focus on so we're obviously like the, the client connects to us we connect to the web servers and we send the data back right that's like our model so everything in that communication chain um, is the telemetry that we care a lot about because it could mean that there's a problem with the client servers. It could mean that there's uh, latency or issues that are affecting the user. Or it could mean a security issue. You know, so that's the type of stuff we need to obviously track for scaling up and scaling down, as well as for alerting the user to, to problems with their with their service. Yeah, it sounds like a very difficult field, especially given uh, the the trends of traffic can change. You know, the usage can change. You have to like incorporate all of that um, in order to actually be confident about you know the detection, right? Exactly. So it's like you know, people tend to use the word uh, ML here, right? Like machine learning. That's what they <laughs> tend to say. But really, it's just a statistics problem, like at its core, right? You're you're really just evaluating numbers against other numbers. We are like we do work with some ML type of stuff because of exactly what you've said is that traffic patterns can change very rapidly. In one minute, you could have ten times the traffic than you do in the next minute, but they change in a way that makes sense if you look at all of the data instead of one data point. So for example, your throughput will go down in a predictable fashion with your request per second, as will your HTTP 200 replies, as will your post requests, as will your CPU usage on the server, as will your network latency. As, you know, and if something there doesn't decrease at the same pace that something else decreases, then anomalies become very obvious to a system that's looking at the data as a whole. Where we've had a lot of difficulty is weeding out all of the like kind of trash that it picks up, right? <laughs> but I mean, that's that's kind of our value add to that, I guess. But, you know, really trying to find the balance of saying like, you know, because the, other, the worst thing about a telemetry and analysis and, and kind of visibility, observability platform is if you generate so many alerts that people start to ignore them, then you're really like, then that's a total loss. Rather have too few that, the, that you get the really important ones through. So it's quite hard. It is difficult. And also, especially seeing as we are scaling, we're, we're trying to pre-scale based off the information right so like it's quite a balancing act but one of the biggest learnings for me personally with telemetry something that i've learned from our team is that things start to make a lot more sense when you're looking for anomalies in sets of measurements instead of individual measurements and i think that's been like a big core design factor for our platform i think that all makes sense though because anybody who's ever been on pager you know like had a pager or anything for a product knows that when you get paged for too many anomalies you basically get to this point where you just assume, oh, I'll wait till it does it again to see if it's actually a real thing. And when that's happening, it's like, okay, that defeats the whole purpose of the system we have in place because people are ignoring things. But then you also mentioned, you know, like you will get some 
if you're working on anomalies, you can get some spikes in traffic. And I remember one of the ones that stuck out to me was uh, I was helping with Google Code Jam. And it's one of those competitions where everybody logs in at the exact same time because that's when the competition starts. And I believe at the time, the way that they were doing some of their monitoring stuff was basically the same thing. It looked for anomalies. So the guys who were setting it up basically knew that you sort of had to warm up the servers ahead of time. So it was this weird thing where you're like, what are you doing? And he's like running a script to sort of get the server used to this, you know, their quest load coming in. And it was just because that was the simplest way to, you know, ignore that anomaly because you knew it was coming. But it really tended to happen during very specific things. Like if you have a timed event, you know, and that sort of traffic spikes, then it becomes very challenging. And I think that's probably also like you see video games and stuff like that that have a launch date. And I think they have to deal with that type of problem pretty heavily where it's hard to detect an anomaly when everything just skyrockets all of a sudden. Yeah, exactly. But a lot of the time, anomaly is it can be informative. I mean, I think that's also up to the team that that gets them to make sure that they do the right thing. Like if our website gets 10 times the views after this podcast, I'm happy to be told. Yeah, it's not going to go offline, but like, I don't, you know, sometimes, sometimes informative telemetry is not necessarily a problem, right? But yeah, it can reach the point of spam, you know, which then people start to ignore, which is a big problem. But, you know, it's a balancing act, right? Like that's everything to do with alerts and with anomaly detection is all about balancing it. Like you want to make sure you pick stuff up. Like the problem at our scale becomes so vast because like, Let's use like a use case, like let's say like a banking client of ours, right? They might have systems in 20 different countries. Now, how many failed logins per second do you think they get? You know, it could be 500, could be 1,000 that they get per second. So if they got 10 more, 20 more, 50 more, it might not detect an anomaly. But what if they get 50 more in all of their locations around the world, all from the same country? Is that a problem? You know, probably it is, right? And so, like, sometimes that's the funny thing about telemetry is that people tend to zoom all the way in. Like, we were talking about, like, trace IDs. You know, like, what is the individual request? And a lot of the time, that's very important. But sometimes it's, like, actually really important to have that 10,000-foot view where you say, like, just what is the lay of the land? Like, what does it all look like as a picture? And that's also something that's like not that easy to do now there's not a lot of standard stuff for that and 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 like way or, or just best practices you know like how do you set up your dashboarding and you know if you're using prometheus or if you're using datadog or whatever it is you know like how do you like using that uh is like a big failing i think in devops teams and, and traditional teams today is is making sure that you always go back to your telemetry and say why didn't this tell us about this problem before it happened you know like there should be almost like a, a root cause analysis after issues and it doesn't have to be this like fancy process but like just to say like, why why were we not aware of this now that we understand what it was yeah that's such a really good point especially like large teams large companies if they haven't thought about telemetry in the beginning, you know, they want to introduce it at a later time, but they don't know where to begin. Anomaly detection really helps them to explore the area as well. It's not super obvious to you, but you can like maybe run it just to see and like explore all these like edge cases and some of the critical things like correlations and, you know, you it may actually help you to explore what you need to take a look at. Even if you end up having a you know SLO type of approach in the end. Yeah, I mean, you said the most important word, which is correlations. Like, and a lot of the time, it's not obvious, like to the human eye, but it can really help when you're trying to scale systems. You know, and like the nature of scale has changed so much now. Like, you can scale up easily nowadays in the cloud or in containers or whatever. But like the difficulty and the challenges at the languages that we write in are so high up the stack 
that like a lot of the time, the difficulty in diagnosing like the bottlenecks or the performance issues of things can be very hard. And like being able to put two data points together and understand that that's why something is slow or like that's why it's never going to scale. Even if you put 3000 servers behind it, that can be helped a lot by anomaly detection. Yeah, this is more uh, art than science, it sounds like. It really is. Like, you know, I read this funny thing the other day about like the difference of, like uh, with developers, you know, that some are artists and some are like engineers, I think, or whatever it was. But like, the, it is like an art because you really need to say like, well, you know, what are the what ifs like and, and what can I just store and see what I get out of it? And, and mm-hmm. it is experimental, I think. Okay. Um, one last question for you before we go to our uh, next segment. Based on what you're seeing so far and how your customers are, what you're seeing in terms of the data that you can glean from uh, how your customers use your product are most of the things that trigger something to look at, right? Something that's important to look at, right? Uh, of the anomalies. Uh, are most of those being triggered by in, from internal sources, meaning that the developers pushing new code, making changes that's causing issues, or are those coming from the outside, right? Maybe there's somebody who's trying to brute force their way in, or maybe uh, the company just got listed on some popular website or something, and maybe there's a surge in traffic. Like, what is it, generally speaking, where are the biggest sources of problems? Generally speaking, I mean, you know, like the answer I want to give you as well, you know, it's both. But let's pin me down for an actual answer. (laughs) If my back was against the wall, I'd say usually it's the servers and the apps that fail in a condition which the team has struggled to test. Testing things nowadays can be very hard, you know. I mean, like, like, take our platform. We need to test 10 million active connections, 10 million active devices connecting to our platform. How do we do that? We've got, like, six Kubernetes servers that are running on 2,000 machines, you know, and, it, and it's still a nightmare, right? Like, it's just... So, you get these systems where people scale things up and where people put things in, you know, order scale groups and everything, and ultimately, there's still some bottleneck and things fall over that they just couldn't test. It's like Black Friday, you know, people... Like, if massive e-commerce sites can fail, I assure you, yours can too, <laughs> you know, and in this unpredictable load. So, the reality is that most of the time, it's that that's failing. But what's interesting is that it's often easy to predict that it's going to fail and allow them, hopefully, time to correct for it, right? Like, you know, to predict that page load times are slower than normal, that traffic is higher than normal at this time on this day, that, uh, you know, like, we'll go all the way down to DNS queries, right? So, like, there's way more DNS queries coming in than we normally have coming in for the site and, you know, versus the request per second, or, like, you know, all these kinds of things. So, usually, an issue is downtime on the upstreams the actual origin servers for the API, for the website, for the e-commerce store, whatever it is. But the cause, the reason that it happens, it will often be a burst in traffic or something unexpected or some new feature mm-hmm. that gets rolled out or a change in like the database system. You know, like someone upgrades from like one SQL to the next SQL version and like some, you know, the query cache is now no longer one gig by default. Instead, it's now zero by default and the whole <laughs> system falls apart. And, you know, but you can start to see that because like at two in the morning, actually the page load times got worse. And if someone mm. could see that and say, oh, hang on, at six, the page load times are worse. What happened last night? They won't fall over at nine when the traffic starts. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like, that's the beauty of telemetry, right? Is understanding those like unknown changes. And, and you know, you, you upgrade your SQL server, you go to the website, everything works and you think, okay, whew, it's working. <laughs> you know, you don't know that there's been a 25% page load time decrease because you can't feel that. Mm-hmm. But when, you know, you get hit by 100,000 requests a second, you feel it big time. Mm-hmm. So 
John, would you like to introduce our guest to our next segment? Sure. So Matt started this segment called Unpopular Opinion. And I think right about here they put in some little riff. So basically the idea is we want you to share an unpopular opinion you have, preferably in tech, but it doesn't necessarily have to be, with the goal kind of being to just share with listeners that, you know, not everybody agrees with the, you know, really popular opinions. Everybody sort of has different things that they disagree with and, you know, want to share. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't say this, but I'm vegan and that's pretty unpopular. (laughs) But uh, if we're talking about tech... The biggest thing that I have made the mistake of myself uh, and that I see a lot of small companies doing, you know, I work with like a a few startups or helping people, you know, a lot of our earlier stage companies that join. Like, so we have like a community edition, which is free. And so we get to, to communicate with a lot of like these, you know, guys pushing the boundaries of things that they are doing and, and, and get in touch with them. One of the things that is probably an unpopular opinion is that I think that startups and a lot of people are, are writing code in, in the wrong languages, like almost all the time. <laughs> So they should be writing in Go is what you're saying. They should be using Go. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, it depends. So how many Go devs do they have on their team, right? So that's the point, right? That's the point. Like is that I think people at young companies, uh, they choose the language based on on how trendy and how cool and how high performance it can be, right? Mm. But like no one really wants to maintain a wiki that's like been written in Erlang. And a lot of the time people are not worrying about, you know, how easy is it to hire talent for this? How easy is it to scale this? How well known is this in the developer scene and the markets? And, you know, they, like, I, I think much more likely your app is slow because your code is bad than because the language you wrote it in is bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you get to that point, like, then you're past that, that struggle. But, like, this tendency to always chase, like, the latest language, uh, I think, gives people business scaling problems like and it's very difficult to get talent for it and it's very difficult to build an engineering team around it and so i mean yeah i would say that i think people are often choosing the language that they use incorrectly i i don't actually think that go is an example of that because it's it's one of the ones that i think it's very easy to pick up and to learn and to get resources on and to find people that are playing with it like for whatever reason you know like it's done well to get a community but you know a lot of people will We'll just write in whatever the last like uh, podcast or webinar they watched, you know, was using. <laughs> and I think that's a mistake. <laughs> awesome. I can definitely relate to that. I've seen it go the opposite direction too, though, where the general advice is, you know, if it's going to be three of you, you're probably going to work on this thing with just the three of you for six months to a year before you can really afford to hire. Like maybe not always, but there's a lot of times where that's the case. So it's like in that six months to a year, how are the three of you going to be most productive? So you kind of pick a language based on that. And I say three, it could be one person, two, you know, however many people. And I've seen companies that start with really old languages as a result. And what was the one? I think it was Perl. It was it was Perl is what they used. And the only real issue with that, it wasn't like they were productive and they got a lot of stuff done. But I think they struggled later, like you said, with hiring, because when it comes time to hire later, you're like a, a trendy startup, but everybody looks at the language you're using and they're like, that's eh, not exactly my first choice. And you know, nobody really wants to spend time learning a language that is probably not going to benefit their career in the future. 
you know, so like if you're learning Go, you're like, okay, this can at least benefit me in the future if I find other companies that are picking it up. But if you're learning a language that's, you know, not dead necessarily, but it's, you know, it's not growing, then it's a little bit different too. So I guess the, I see what you're saying, but I guess I'd also take caution on the other side of it and say, don't use something that's, you know, also going to cause problems because it's so old or you just know it so well. You know, even though you know it that well, it might still present issues. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, like my the crux of my point is make sure that it's easy to hire people with that language, right? Which is which is I think exactly what you're saying. Like there is a balance between something that's growing steadily, that's got a lot of acceptance and people talking about it, and is also actually being used at companies that people have production experience with it. Because like just because someone understands a language doesn't mean that they know how you build a massive app and keep this thing online and actually deliver it in that language, you know, and and maintain it and and. It's like uh, like frameworks are a good example, you know. Like stay away from frameworks because like we must like you know we must write this thing as bare as possible. Like then like write it in assembler then, you know. Like but like if a framework is going to make your team of three get five times more work done in the first six months that you've got to get your MVP out, then use that. Like I would say find that middle path, but like I think people are are far too far too far forward than than you need to caution them to to go backwards, you know. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think that's a problem that comes with all sorts, like, I'm trying to think of how to word this. Basically, like, how you deploy things can also present issues where everybody wants to use Docker and Kubernetes and stuff. But I remember when Google's uh, app engine was fairly new, I knew a couple of people who wrote a lot of stuff in Python, and they were like, well, let's go to, you know, app engine, it's going to autoscale for us. And their first project, they really struggled because there's a lot of specific things you kind of have to learn about App Engine that once they figured that all out, like their second project, they would have flown on App Engine. But their first project, they were like, it was really a pain in the butt to deal with all these th- you know, all these blockers that really shouldn't have been there. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a, like a second unpopular opinion of mine. I mean, maybe it's not unpopular, but I don't think that containers and Kubernetes and Cloud Native is a destination. Like when we were all on TIN, Everyone said, okay, everybody is going to be on VMs. And then we were on VMs and now everybody is going to be in the cloud. And that's where it started to get shaky, right? Because not everything did move to the cloud. And now like this idea that the next step in that evolution is containers and cloud native, I, I think is wrong. Like I think there are workloads that are excellently suited to that. There are workloads that are suited well to serverless, but there will always be workloads that are suited to 10 that is within a mile of your house. I think it's a spectrum now. It's like... It's stop trying to make a round uh, peg fit in a square hole. You know, it's like not everything has to be deployed in into containers, which is exactly to your point. Like it's often often the easiest thing, the thing that is used by the most people, turns out to be the best decision. I feel like the cloud is becoming more like the you know programming language industry. You have to like introduce a new product or a new abstraction layer in order to get the attention of people. Maybe I feel like, you know, partially why we have so many different solutions is just because, you know, people want to make some noise about it. Yeah, you, you, you couldn't be more right. And it's like, it's interesting how like the simple clouds are doing better, you know, are, are growing quickly now. And it's like, it's something that we actually see in our business because like we compete with commodity load balancing in, in like clouds, like with ELB or LB or, you know, Azure's gateways or, you know, whatever it might be, every cloud's got a load balancer, right? So we compete with them. But what's interesting is that people want to be cloud neutral now. So they want to be able to say, well, yeah, yeah, I, you know, I'm in, I'm in GCP now, but I can shift that to Azure or I can shift it straight to, you know, and they actually want to use less and less of the, like, 
commodity, like proprietary cloud stuff, you know, and, and try and stay neutral. So it's like they're delivering more and more features to keep on everyone's kind of tongues and, and, and keep talking about it. But I think people are steering more and more away from using one specific infrastructure provider's solution. Hey, new features bring new sales, man. That's, that's you know, you got, you got to factor that in. <laughs> hey, look, we add new features all the time. I feel you. <laughs> I do what I say, not what I do. <laughs> awesome, awesome. So in general, then, we can say that orchestration and scaling have generally become easier. Telemetry is one of the hard problems still remaining um, that a lot of people are trying to solve, uh, your company included. And as we explore today with you, Dave, uh, we know that there's no one size fits all. But at, at the very least, um, it's advisable that uh, everybody starts with something, right? That's, that should be considered um, having some form of telemetry that provides some form of insight into your workloads is a uh, minimum required to be considered production ready to some degree. Yeah, I mean, when you start working, if you put in a comment that says to do, add telemetry <laughs> to this because it's a, it's a bottleneck, then that's fine too. Just start thinking about it and the rest will come. <laughs> nice. Uh, hopefully, hopefully you do a little more than just think about it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, indeed. So uh, yeah, so thank you for joining us, uh, Dave. And, and thank you to my co-hosts, um, John and Yana. I am uh, Johnny Borsico. Catch you in the next Go Time. Thanks again for listening. Word of mouth is how we grow the GoTime community. Is there a gopher or aspiring gopher in your life who would benefit from listening? We would truly appreciate a recommendation. Shoot them a quick email or a Slack message, put out a tweet, whatever makes sense. Hey, go crazy, get up from your desk, walk across the room, and tell them in real life. Who knows? Might start a good conversation. This episode was hosted by Johnny Borsico, John Calhoun, and JBD. Thanks to our special guest, Dave Blakey. It was produced by myself, Jared Santo, with music by the oh-so-mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And we're brought to you by awesome sponsors. Support them. They support the show. You know Fastly, Linode, and Robar all have our back. If you haven't yet, hit up our master feed because, hey, monoliths are back in style. It's all Changelog podcasts in one easy subscription. What do you got to lose? Get it for the price of a free haircut. Thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you next time.